Psalm 131. So, summary statement. Psalm 131 calls Israel to humbly wait for the Lord's redemption. So, uh, again, as I was saying a moment ago, uh, the psalm only has three verses, but to outline it, we could uh, break it up this way, verses 1 and 2, personal confession, and verse 3, communal call. I'll go over that again. Verses 1 and 2, personal confession. And verse 3, communal call. All right, so we'll go to our observations. Psalm 131 was written by David, as we see the superscription there, a song of degrees of David. So it is is ascribed to him. This would be the third of the four David's authored psalms in the psalms of ascent. And those psalms are 122, 124, here in 131, and then 133. There's no musical direction given beyond the superscription. Um, There's no occasion that is given for the writing of this psalm. Um, if we look at the setting of the psalm, it's, it's one about patient waiting, which certainly contributes to the exile pilgrimage themes of the Psalms of Ascent, but doesn't really um, give us any, any real clue as far as to when in David's life that this psalm might have been written. To categorize, Psalm 131 is a psalm of ascent, and we've talked about this subgroup of psalms in book 5, and the, those psalms are beginning at 120, going through 134. There are 15 of them. This is the 12th now of the 15. Um, the minor elements of this psalm would be, uh, one would be what you might call prayer or trust or confidence, um, and there's a certain feature of humility to that. And then another uh, minor element would be that of wisdom. And we see that in a couple of, couple, two or three ways, actually. Um, some, of the, some of the statements are actually very similar um, to some statements we see in, in some of the wisdom writing in Proverbs. Um, we get this reference to life and, and sort of mother and child and, and such, and those sort of uh, themes are, are common um, in wisdom literature. And there's also what you might call something of a feminine motif when you talk about mother and child, and um, which is also uh, was echoing from Psalm 123 um, that spoke of maidservants and mistresses and that and that sort of thing. So, gives it uh, gives it just a wisdom flavor. Um, Psalm 131 does connect with the other Psalms of Ascent. We've talked about how this subgroup of this of the Psalms has a has a very um, discernible flow to it. And so um, some of the main themes of the Psalms of Ascent have to do with, with waiting and hope and, and redemption for Israel, um, and that, this psalm certainly contributes to that. Um, it connects in particular with Psalm 121 and Psalm 125, and there we get in those psalms particular expressions of confidence in Yahweh and statements of from henceforth and forever. Um, there in Psalm 121 and verse 8, and Psalm 125 and verse number 2, and we see that continued here. 
Um, beyond that, it connects very strongly with Psalm 130, the one that comes just before it. Um, and you can see in verse 7 of Psalm 130, let Israel hope in the Lord. And in verse 3 here, let Israel hope in the Lord. Um, so there's a repetition of that between those psalms. Um, but it's also when you read Psalm 130 and then you go into Psalm 131, you can see that there's a, there, it's Psalm 131 is, functions very much like a complement to 130. 130, you remember, was about um, forgiveness, um, about redemption. And so it's, it's Psalm 131 then sort of reads like the calm assurance that flows from forgiveness of sins that we read about in Psalm 130. And so they do uh, function like a, like a complementary pair in a lot of ways in that way. Um, the poetic features of Psalm 131, uh, one would obviously be a very simple structure. Um, so the, the first verse essentially tells you what David has not done or is not going to do, and the second verse tells you what David does or is going to do, and then the third verse from that tells you what Israel should do. Um, so a very simple structure to this psalm, but a very definite pattern that you can see as it moves uh, which is why I outlined the psalm the way I did, because it moves sort of from that personal experience and personal confession um, into the exhortation to Israel. This is, this is what um, you should do. Uh, beyond that, the psalm uses uh, imagery, it has a controlling imagery. You get this mother and child imagery um, that occurs there in, in verse number 2. Uh, which essentially forms the main image of the psalm and, and depicts how that um, David is content and how that he's resting in confidence and trusting in the Lord and what he is telling Israel that they should do. All right, so we want to work through the psalm. We have three verses here, and I'll go ahead and read these. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. So obviously we begin here with this personal confession. and We've got direct address prayer to the Lord. Not a petition. Um, there's not any requests or anything that, that come in this, in this prayer psalm, but it certainly um, is directed to the Lord. Um, he begins, you'll notice, in this first verse with a, with a triple negative. He's not haughty, he's, he's not lofty, and he's not exercised in great matters. So this, again, this is the things that David doesn't do or, or will, not, will not do. Um, and really, when you look at these particular things, the haughtiness, the loftiness, and the, and the, um, the um, exercise in great matters, these are the kind of sins that Israel was rebuked for in places like Isaiah um, chapter 2 and, and chapter Three haughtiness and, and loftiness of eyes and, and that sort of thing. So well, what does this mean more, in, more particularly? Well, the word for haughty that is used here, means it means lifted up. And, and when it's used in this way, it is an expression of pride. Um, it, it is an expression of an arrogance, of um, a self-sufficiency. And when you couple that with heart, and you notice that he uses that term there, my heart is not haughty. Uh, the heart points to the mind, to the will, to the, to the inner being um, of the person. And so when he says that his heart is not haughty, essentially what David is saying here is that, that he's not thinking too highly of himself. He's not thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think 
And really, it's, it's, um, he, he is, he's actually being humble in this, um, in this psalm. And I think probably a good word to describe it would be modest. Uh, it, it's a modest psalm. Um, so he's not thinking too highly of himself. Now, usually when this is pointed out, and it is in other places in the psalms as, as a sin, something that's being rebuked or, or called out in some way, it, the way that it's usually manifested is someone having a very high view of their own abilities, of their own standing in terms of what is owed to them or what is due to them, uh, whether it be respect or honor or, or um, any, any number of things. The word for lofty, it is a different word, but it essentially means high, has the same sort of idea there. Um, but loftiness of eyes essentially can be an expression of ambition, of grand desires. And this would actually be what we might refer to as self-reliance, um, self-sufficiency, self-actualization, those, those sort of things. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's directly opposite. It's opposed to the sort of humble trust that was expressed like back in Psalm 123 and verse number 1, which is one of the psalms that this psalm complements in um, the Psalms of Ascent. Now, the word for great matters, and I'll exercise myself in great matters, this word is typically applied to God or his attributes or his works. I'm not saying it's exclusively, but it is frequently and particularly in the psalm. So, in Psalm 21, verse 5, God's glory is great. In Psalm 47, verse 2, and Psalm 95, verse 3, he's described as a great king. Psalm 48, verse 1, Psalm 96, verse 4, Psalm 99, verse 2, the Lord, Yahweh, is great. In Psalm 57, and verse 10, Psalm 86, and verse 13, Psalm 108, and verse 4, his mercy is is great. In Psalm 71, verse 19, Psalm 106, verse 21, he has done great things. In Psalm 76, verse 1, and Psalm 99, verse 3, his name is great. In Psalm 77, and verse 13, he is incomparably great. In Psalm 86, and verse 10, he is great and does wonders. And in Psalm 111, and verse 2, his works are great. So, we see a number of times, and, and more often than it's been applied to anything else, it's applied to God, his attributes, or his works in the Psalms leading up to this point. Now, when we, when we couple this with things too high, things beyond, these are describing, ultimately, things that belong to God, things that are incomprehensible and unattainable to us people, us human beings. And David is saying, I don't exercise or I don't. And, and I think the word there, if I remember correctly, um, actually means to like walk in. I don't, I don't walk in these things that are too great for me, too high for me. Um, in, in other words, these are, these are, this reminds us of uh, what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and, and verse 29 um, to that generation of Israel in the plains of Moab before they were to enter into the promised land that the secret things, he said, belong to God. These things that are revealed, he, before this, he says, they're not, 
they're not too high and lofty for you. They're not unattainable. They're not, uh, they're not incomprehensible. God has, has given you plainly in his word what he's requiring of you. And beyond that, those things belong to God and essentially not to us. So David is, is giving that sort of a confession. I, I'm not trying to entangle myself. And uh, at times, Israel would become entangled with those things. And they might uh, turn to uh, necromancy or uh, the fortune-telling or the various other things that they would be rebuked for, which, which in their very essence are attempts to find out and to access something that God hasn't given us, some knowledge, what, some, uh, whatever that it, that it might be, some experience or something that God has not given us and has forbidden us, um, that's what those sort of things are. Well, David says, I don't exercise myself in, in those things. I, I don't concern myself with those things. Then we go to verse number 2. And this is where David introduces this controlling image of a mother and a weaned child. Now, the image that we're getting here depicts a weaned child sort of sitting on or laying, laying on his mother. And a, a weaned child, as it's described here, would essentially refer to a child maybe, maybe three to five years old. So not, you know, not grown, not, um, not a child that's self-sufficient, though a child that um, you know, has developed some abilities and, and things. Um, but being weaned means that he's not dependent on his mother that way, you know, and, and also he can't, you know, seek nourishment from her, um, but rather a weaned child resting on his mother, as, as we're getting the, the image here, means that he's, he has comfort and he has safety, and, and that is, that's what he has sought and that's what he has gained. So what this is is an expression of humble dependence, you see, such a child doesn't understand great things, and, and such a child can be easily frightened or unsettled. But his mother gives him comfort and security. That's the image that David is, is giving us here. Such a child doesn't have to worry about figuring out the world's problems. Um, such a child doesn't have to worry about sorting out all of the problems that exist in the creation. The child just rests in, in his mother's arms and feels and believes that everything is all right. So he can't understand many of the potential dangers um, that are threatening him, but yet the child rests in his mother's arm, and probably a good way to express it is content, has comfort, has security, and is content. And then verse 3 that ends the psalm gives us this call, this exhortation to Israel. Um, so this simple psalm, and it is a very simple, short psalm, and this simple psalm, you can see how it builds up now to this final verse, to this final call. In other words, that's the goal of the psalm. This is what David is driving at. He writes this psalm, and, and again, it begins with a very personal experience and a very personal confession. But what he, what he has been aiming for has been this final call to Israel in verse number 3. 
So he's calling Israel to humble and patient hope in the Lord. And um, in case, um, you know, you're not sure, that means waiting. That's what that means. That means waiting on things to come. Not having all of those things, but waiting on those things to come. Israel is being exhorted then to not entangle themselves in matters too high and unreachable for them, but rather they are to rest comfortably in the promises of God that their redemption will come. Now, again, it's hard to tell when David wrote this particular psalm, but he's obviously relying on the Pentateuch and the prophecies of Moses concerning the future of Israel as he writes this, as well as the covenant that God made with him if it was written late in his life, which is um, very likely. That redemption for Israel would come after David and through his promised son. In other words, remember how that we were told in, in Scripture that David was a prophet um, and that the Spirit spoke through him and so he is he is seeing and he's calling Israel to this sort of patient humble hope and waiting now this is the promise and the hope of Israel from henceforth and forever and, and one another way of, of looking at that would be to say there is no other what else are, are you going to put your hope in? And sometimes Israel would be rebuked, actually, for putting their hope and their trust in other things. So it reminds us of, of places in the prophets that speak of this future time, far back as, as Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 49, verses 13 to 15, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted his people, and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. And here's the response. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. So this is what they are being called to rest in. You have these kind of promises. Rest in them. You can't... You can't um, meddle in things that are too high for you, just like God's purpose and will for his creation and, and his plan and appointment of when he's going to carry these things out. You can't hurry that along. You can't move that in, in the timeline. Um, you simply have to rest and hope in the Lord. All right, let's go to interpretation. Psalm 131 teaches the difficult doctrine of humble human submission to the sovereign God. Not, I don't call that a difficult doctrine because it's difficult to find in the Bible because it's actually all through the Bible. Anywhere in the Bible you want to read, you're going to find the sovereignty of God being displayed being described, being praised, being gloried in. No, it's not difficult to find. And the doctrine of, of the sovereignty of, of God and, and the humility um, of human submission is not expressed in obscure terms that are hard to understand. No, this is difficult 
because people find it difficult to accept and to submit to. That's what makes it difficult, and that's what David is talking about. And so the Bible teaches us that you are not God. I am not God. We never have been God. We never will be God. We're not equal with God. We're not God's peers. We are not little g gods. Neither are we consultants to God's administration of his creation. We are his created beings. Made to praise, to glorify, and to serve our creator. So, David is giving a confession here that's in the vein of other such confessions. Um, Job chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. And of course this comes at the end of the book of Job, after Job has been very faithful in most of the things that he has said, but he has also questioned God, and he has wondered about these things, and he comes to the end and says, now I see that I should have never spoken. I should have been silent before you. Well, David teaches us in this psalm that we have a place. And that place is not a seat at the table of the secret counsels of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 that I referred to earlier, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law written to Israel pertaining particularly to the old covenant law that they had in writing at that time. So Israel in all of her trials and in all of her judgments and all of her long exile have oftentimes asked why or how long and have probably even suggested a better course of action for God to take. But for all that, they have not and will not move God from the counsel of his own will. And he will simply do what he has purposed to do at the appointed time that he has purposed to. To do it and we cannot move him from it so Israel is taught in this psalm that they are to rest in what they do have what do they have well they certainly have knowledge of God of who God is who he has revealed himself to be of his goodness of his faithfulness how many times have we, have we seen the reference to God's chesed? We don't have it in this particular psalm, but we've seen it time and time again in the psalms. God is faithful to the promises he has made. Not one of them will fail. We just recently in the Sermon on the Mount 
Jesus talking about how not, not even the, the, the least stroke of the quill on the parchment when the, when the words were written down, not, not the least one will fail, but all will be fulfilled. So they have the promise of his word. So they are to be patient and they are to humbly trust God to keep his word in the time that he has appointed for it. Now, the messianic hope of this psalm is particularly seen through David once again prefiguring his greater son who personified this psalm perfectly. Think of what Paul wrote of Jesus humbling himself. And at least part of this should be pretty fresh on your mind because we've been memorizing it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a doulos, of a slave, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus took upon him the form of a slave and humbled himself unto God as his master. And so then Jesus said things like John chapter 5 and verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. John six thirty eight. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And so then we get this statement in Mark chapter 13 and verse 32. Jesus said, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Now, obviously, there is a certain amount of mystery involved to us as, as we think about the humility of, of the Savior, how that Jesus humbled himself and submitted fully to the sovereignty of his father but through his humility jesus was exalted and salvation has come into the world and when he returns it will not be in the humility of his first advent it will be in the glory of his power and his reign when he comes to destroy his enemies and establish his kingdom, which is obviously what Israel is commanded to hope in and to wait for. All right, application. I just stuck with one main application. So understanding Psalm 131 helps us today, as as modern readers even, to understand our place in the universe you might say there are many many things that are too high for us 
things that we really shouldn't be bothered about. God runs the universe, and he does it perfectly. And he also does it without our counsel and without our consent. So we have to beware of what we might call offensive truth. Um, and uh, just wanted to give an, an example of this, one I've used um, at times before, just so striking. So this is back in 2009, and um, in fact, on September 11th, so the anniversary of September 11th, and there was a press conference held in Minneapolis, Minnesota, of the Religious News Writers Association, and there was a, a Q&A panel with this room full of reporters, and on this panel uh, were Colin Hansen, John Piper, and Carolyn James, and the subject of this particular press conference was the new Calvinist, and the reason was, why was because that year uh, Time Magazine came out with their top ten ideas that are currently changing the world, and uh, I forget what number it was. Do I have it written down here? It was number three, the New Calvinism, which refers, uh, I don't have time to get into all that, but, but refers basically to um, the early 2000s in particular, and, and you had a resurgence of Calvinism uh, among, especially among millennials and, and those of younger generations. Uh, Colin Hansen wrote a book about it, and that's the reason why he was on that particular panel. Uh, John Piper was at the time, pastor there at Bethlehem Baptist Church in uh, Minneapolis. And so each of these speakers was given uh, a few minutes that they made sort of opening statements, and John Piper talked about the anniversary of September 11th, and he also talked about um, the, the things that, that he would say. Um, and he was talking about essentially how uh, Calvinism or you know, strong belief in the, in the sovereignty of God and, and such um, how that it deals with a tragedy like 9-11. And essentially, he said, on September 12th, the question was, where was God? And he responded that God was not helpless. God wasn't unable to stop these events. God was in charge and in control. And then he mentioned what he would say eight years later on um, the anniversary of such a time to uh, children who had lost parents um, in those terrorist attacks. And he said he would still tell them that God was sovereign over that moment and that he's still the same sovereign God who is wise and good and that he will help them um, in the difficulties that they have been given. Now, there was a reporter there... Um, I think she was the religion editor or something for USA Today. I don't, I don't remember exactly what her title was. And th so this is the question that she, she put to, to him. She said, if you could please go back to your opening comments about what you would tell the children who lost their parents. And notice this. She said, because I must have misunderstood you. If I lost a spouse and I took my, my child to your church and I heard you say those things... I would take my child out and never come back. So clearly, I misunderstood. John Piper immediately responded, not necessarily. 
Not necessarily did she misunderstand. Now, he went on to, to talk and, and, and explain various things, but to her, it was extremely offensive to, to say that God is sovereign and God is in control and something so evil and terrible happened. That was offensive to her. And so she had to be misunderstanding that he was saying that God was, was sovereign and could have stopped that, but he permitted it to take place for reasons that are sufficient unto himself and owes us no explanation of it. Well, that is what you might call an offensive truth to many people because, again, this is the real difficult doctrine of the Bible. Who is going to be God? Who's going to be God? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be you? Or is it going to be the God of heaven and earth who created all things? Well, again, this is a, a psalm that speaks right to that very subject that's so difficult because we are so proud. We do not want to humble ourselves and simply just accept what we are told is true. So again, this is a, this is a psalm that helps us in dealing with one of the most difficult issues persistently that people have with the sovereignty of God.